0: Welcome to the Business of Family. I'm your host, Mike Boyd, and this is my look into the world of multi-generational wealth creation, family enterprise, stewardship, family office investing, and the curation of a legacy. On the podcast, I interview members of some of the world's most interesting families to hear how they pass knowledge, resources, values, and wealth to the next generation. I hope you'll enjoy sharing this learning journey with me and would greatly appreciate any feedback, resources, or referrals you have to offer. To sign up to my weekly business of family newsletter, go to newsletter.mikeboyd.com.au. I'm delighted to introduce Rob Robson, a founder, serial entrepreneur, and great student of multi-generational wealth creation. It was Rob who first introduced me to the phrase, the business of family, and ignited in me a passion to explore this topic deeply. The Robson family approach to structuring their family partnership and stewarding their assets for succeeding generations is some of the best work I have seen in this area. I have no doubt that you'll have many takeaways from today's conversation. Rob, I thought a fun place to start might be with your current role and title. You're the founder of One Harvest, Australia's largest fresh salads business, but these days you're often described as a pirate. How did that come
1: to be? Yeah, well, well, it's my grandchildren that describe me as a pirate. That's not a term I hear regularly from uh, other members of my family, but my pirate side of things comes through the fact that for the last eight years, my wife, Pamela, and I have um, spent five to seven months each year sailing in various parts of the world, often in very remote parts of the world, and uh, one of the things we do if, uh, when we're visited with uh, children and grandchildren is we raise the pirate flag uh, on the boat and do lots of our um, r and uh, that sort of stuff which, <laughs> which the kids love, and it's, it's about as close as they'll get to a uh, a real pirate, I think. I hope. Uh, so that's how that comes about.
0: And five to seven months sailing a year for the last eight years—that's an incredible amount of time on the water. Is that something that you consider retirement, or um, you know, what was the decision to, in effect, go sailing? Yeah,
1: well, it's sort of evolved, Mike. I I, I regard myself as a late life sailor. Pamela and I bought a serious boat around about my sixtieth birthday and we really worked from a succession planning side of things. We worked in the family business to give me an exit by the time I turned 70. And in fact, we we did that so well that I woke up one morning at age 65 and realized I'd worked myself out of a job. And so it 65. I uh, got the opportunity to organize a boat to be built in Cape Town. And one of the problems of building it in Cape Town is you've got to get it out of Cape Town. And so we, on completion with a couple of crew, Pamela and I took the boat to Brazil and up to the Caribbean, and then eventually across the Atlantic to Europe, back to the Caribbean, thinking we were on track to bring it through the Panama Canal to Australia and uh, then decided we hadn't seen enough of Europe. So back to Europe again, some more time in the Mediterranean up to the Baltic. In 2016, we it through the Panama Canal and Galapagos over to French Polynesia and on to New Zealand. And the boat's been uh, based for the last three years in New Zealand. Last year, we had three months in Tonga the year before, five months in Fiji, and back to uh, Auckland. And, of course, the boat's locked up due to COVID, so it's sitting in the in the river at Fongare in New Zealand, and this year, 2020, is going to be a pretty quiet year uh, sailing-wise for us.
0: I can imagine you're itching to get back on the water. R- rewind just a step for me, a, a brief background on... Uh, your business or or perhaps your story prior to heading off sailing?
1: Well, my mum and dad uh, had a a very small fruit and vegetable business in Ipswich, 40 kilometers uh, southwest of Brisbane. And my earliest memories as a young boy going to the markets in Brisbane with my father, him doing the buying and bringing fruits and vegetables back to Ipswich, and actually servicing the uh, mum-and-pop grocery stores that were on every second corner. This was in the 1950s, and also servicing the vendors that went, the street vendors that went around to the suburbs uh, originally with horse and carts, but then with old trucks, old utilities, and delivered fruits and vegetables to the inhabitants of um, a small country town, Ipswich. I had uh, I have uh, a younger brother and two younger sisters. Uh, we were expected to work in the business uh, in the school holidays and on weekends, and uh, we were brought up into an industry that we uh, knew something about. And eventually, after I finished uh, my education, which included uh, an accountancy major at the University of Queensland, I worked uh, uh, in the, my dad's business. For five or six years Uh, along the way, Pamela and I were married and and, uh, started having our family, and one of the things that became obvious to me was that this business of my mum and dad's was going to be too small to support the families. In 1972, Pamela and I took some time off from my job in in my father's business and we travelled to Europe, UK and the United States over an 11-week period looking at the fruit and vegetable business and from farm gate to processing factory to distribution centre to supermarket to farm stalls, the whole uh, length and breadth of the industry and we decided that there were some opportunities to start New businesses in Australia with the learnings that we'd adopted or picked up on the trip to the Northern Hemisphere. My estimation was that the fruit and vegetable supply chain in Australia was some 10 to 20 years behind parts of the Northern Hemisphere. And there was an opportunity to look at that supply chain and start to innovate. With my brother, we started several. New arms in the industry here, still working in the father's business as as a base. And by seventy five, a dad sat us down and said, "Now look, um, have I got this right? You guys have several uh, seven day a week retail stores. Uh, you shipping product from Queensland to." Um, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, and you're buying product in the southern states and and bringing it up here, and you've just bought a stand in the Brisbane markets, and I'm still paying you. Uh, It doesn't seem to be right. How about you let me do my own, run my own business again, and you guys go and play in your own areas that you've created? And So we did that for the next uh, 20 years. We really innovated that supply chain in some areas we were the leaders in the country, you know, first computer installed in Australia in a, in a market operation, our own trucking company to uh, move product genetics, the importing of certain genetics that were new to Australia, seedless watermelons being one of those. There are a whole heap of areas where we just kept on travelling to the US and Europe, noting what was uh, happening there, what the innovation uh, was in those uh, areas, and then coming back and starting those innovations in our own country. One of the ideas that I'd had that I'd put on the back burner was the idea of producing packaged salads. And to me, that looked a major step change for the industry here in australia and we embarked on the salad business and gradually it took a number of years but it gradually took the place of the market business and by 2000 we were out of the market and we were uh, full-time salad producers That's another story, Mike. That could be a couple of books in the salad business because uh, things didn't go all that well uh, for a number of years there and uh, Pamela and I were watered down to uh, 25% ownership of that business. But the business is now 100% owned by our family and, as I said, at uh, 60 years of age, I set the goal to be out of the day-to-day operations by age 70 and we achieved that. Um, So... The business now is owned by the Robson family members, and one of our children, is uh, Sam, is, is CEO.
0: I first heard the phrase, the business of family, during a conversation with you about two years ago. Thank you for stoking in me the desire to learn more about this subject. For whatever reason, it captivates me, and I felt compelled to explore it further. I'd love for you to explain what the business of family means to you.
1: Yeah, well, we picked up the phrase the business of family from Professor John Davis, who was at the time head of the Family Business School at uh, Harvard University. And by having the two designations, the family business and the business of family, it highlights for us that there are two aspects with the potential in this whole area. So the the business of family puts the accent on the family, whereas the phrase, the family business, the accent is on business. And fortunately for us, we tapped into the concept of there being two specific areas here, not just one. And so often we see uh, the emphasis on the business part of the family business. And over the years, we've learned to spend as much time, as much effort and as much planning turning family into the business of family. It's a separate concept from the family business. There's a book we picked up somewhere along the line called Family Wealth, Keeping It in the Family by James E. Hughes, Jr., And Hughes puts up the concept that family wealth really consists of three segments. It consists of the human capital, the intellectual capital, and the financial capital. And Hughes's concept is that if we as parents and as a family spend the time uh, and effort to developing the next generation into being good people, good sound people with an understanding of the responsibilities of, of family and the responsibilities of ownership in a family business, and understanding what business is all about, what families are all about. And if we create the right human capital, then with the right human capital, if we provide the best education, both formal education and global education that we can uh, for those humans, then the human capital plus the intellectual capital will add up for the ability of the financial capital to take care of itself. There's a bit of faith in that equation. But if you think of the family wealth as the human capital, intellectual capital, and the financial capital, then wealth is something far greater uh, than just dollars in the bank or assets in the ground. Tell me, Rob, how
0: have you gained your knowledge and experience in family enterprise? You mentioned briefly, I think it was Professor Davis at Harvard and a, a book or two, but this sounds to me like you've made a very intentional effort to gain and education in this area over the years. As someone setting out to do that now, I'd love to hear of any of the other resources that you found useful on your journey.
1: Well, our our first exposure was in 1992 at a YPO session in Sydney, YPO family business session, and a young Professor Davis then was out from Harvard and was one of the speakers there. And we were fortunate. I, I... Pamela and I can't remember why, but it seemed important at that session that we take our young children, and they were teenagers at that time, but Pamela and I and the four children went to that session in Sydney, and it was interesting because there were 45 or 50 people at that two-day seminar, but we were the only ones there with our children, and that started exposing them, and by seeing their interest, it actually fired us up to uh, gain as much knowledge as we could about this whole family business area. One of the things that came out of that session in 1992 was the importance of regular family meetings, which then became known as the, the Robson Family Council, but also the importance of a written constitution a company a family called the Penfolds who were in the printing business were kind enough to share their written constitution and uh, the constitution laid out the guidelines for how members of of the family would interact with each other what their expectations of each other were and how the members of the family would interact with the family business. And it sort of sparked a goal for Pamela and I to work towards. Fast forward
0: 30-odd years now, how is the family enterprise structured today based on all that you've learned and no doubt evolved over the years? What structure do you operate with today?
1: Let me throw something else in, Mike. We made it a goal to make our business interesting for our children. And I think this is important. This is critical. Our children really became uh, great critics of our business. And they were pretty tough on the business because I guess in those early days, even working as school kids in the school holidays, the business was pretty tough on the kids. And we listened and watched the reactions of, of our children to the, to the business. Our kids were no different to other young people uh, that were coming into the business and working. And if we made the business interesting for young people, including our kids, then it made common sense that we would continue to attract young people to the business. So during that, that 30 year span, we just did our best to make the business a great place to work. And if it's a great place to work that we were proud of, then the family became proud of that as well. Now, within that, there was a, a, a lot of structure. You just didn't get a job in the business because you, um, your name was Robson. You had to work there in the school holidays, of course, but you didn't get a serious job because your name was uh, Robson. The rules of uh, engagement and employment were firmly written down in the constitution and uh, of course we're up to iteration 8 or 10 of the constitution now and we've gradually upgraded that as our uh, situation has changed but let's go back to your original question the legal position is the that our four children are now members of the family partnership there is a formal partnership agreement between Pamela and I and the children, and there are certain legal obligations on their side and on our side. One of the important things is that if it comes to a vote, they must vote as a as a uh, group. They can't decide with either of their parents in the voting, and there's all those legal implications. We've done a lot of thinking about the scenario planning on uh, what could go right, what could go Wrong, but basically the the children are now in an evolution of of where the control will move fully to them. And uh, Pamela and I will uh, will be truly just the, the founding generation. As
0: a follow up to that,
1: Rob, beyond the legal structure,
0: what is the the business of family operations like in practicality? How often are you having family meetings. Or I think you called it the family council early on. Yep. You've got a constitution. How often is it reviewed? How often is, does the family meet? You know, What does it look like in a, a more a day-to-day sense in operating the business of family?
1: So the family partnership consists of uh, the six family members and the family partnership meets normally and formally on a quarterly basis. I think it's important, Mike, uh, to explain where we got this from. We went to Harvard University for the family business course with Professor Davis in 2003. There are four rules put up by Harvard, and rule three is surprise is the enemy. Rule four is structure is your friend. And one of the things that's always stood by us as a family is that we've been ahead of the game with a structure. So we, we first formalised the family council, with that came the constitution and the first iteration of the constitution was really quite simplistic as our children grew older and more interested. We upgraded that constitution and that time we were meeting about twice a year. One of those meetings would be at an interesting place, maybe we'd be skiing or we'd be camping or or whatever, and we just put aside time on a whiteboard, and we, we would revisit our family values, the family mission statement. We would uh, work on the constitution. So the partnership now meets quarterly, and we have an agenda at each meeting. There are minutes taken. There's a timekeeper. There's it's quite quite a formal structural. A process, but it's part of the deal that we we're just used to that now, because uh, of rule number four. Structure is your friend, and to change anything in that, we've got to change the structure. And as the family's grown, and we there are fourteen grandchildren now, we need a process to start integrating the next generation into the concept of the business of family. And the structure we have for that is called the family campfire. And the family campfire is a day or two away with some activity, bike riding or uh, camping out, sitting around the campfire at night and starting to integrate the third generation into aspects of the expectations of the family and expectations of the business.
0: Rob, you mentioned Harvard had four rules for a family to operate within. You mentioned surprise is the enemy, structure is your friend. Can you share with us the other two rules?
1: Rule one is family is family and business is business. And I guess this is what drove the distinction for Pamela and I to understand the difference between the family business and the business of family. So rule one is vital. There's got to be that time where you sit down and discuss family values, family communication, family expectations, and then on the other hand, for the business to survive from generation to generation, uh, there's got to be that time for the business to have its own uh, structure and its own uh, separateness. As well as connection to family. So, family stuff is family stuff, and business stuff is business stuff. Rule two is uh, families grow faster than businesses. And that's pretty much held uh, true. We've got lots of photos of the family at the yearly or six monthly meetings. And for a long time, there just seemed to be six members there. And then as our children have found partners and became married and children started to arrive, suddenly there's 23 of us now in the photo and it, that seems to Pamela and I to have happened in a very, very, very quickly and there's no doubt that our family has grown faster than our business has, has grown. So that, that rule too is important. Surprise is the enemy, so that's a communication issue and the big saviour in rule four, structure is your friend. Structure will always come, in our experience, come to your aid if the structure has been agreed to, the detail put in place with the agreement of all and everyone adhering to the structure. So they're the four rules. The family is family, business is business. Families grow faster than businesses and uh, surprise is the enemy structure, who's your friend.
0: All that you're learning about family enterprise, how do you disseminate that and share those learnings with the wider group?
1: The dream started off as Pamela's and, and my dream. And for a number of years, we shared that dream with our children and communicated about the advantages of having a joint dream and agreement on family values. And there came a time where the evolution of the dream changed from being our dream, Pamela's and my dream, to the dream of the family members and then on to where it became the next generation's dream. There were quite painful times when I, I had to let go of my dream in certain areas uh, because it wasn't necessarily going to be the next generation's dream. How do you distinguish who you're
0: talking as? You're the founder of the business, but you're also a founding generation member, and you're talking about the next generation. But does the next generation mean your children or the grandchildren or the one that is yet to come?
1: Those definitions have changed over time. I can remember not so many years ago, Pamela and I were this generation. Our children were next NG, next generation. Well, at some stage, we sat back and we became the founding generation, Pamela and I. NG became TG. So next generation became this generation, which is our children today, and so even notionally as well as from a definition point of view, they are the most important generation in the family and in the business at the moment, and they contribute most to the upkeep and changes in the constitution and in the direction of the businesses and the direction of the family. And NextGen, we actually refer to as the Cousin Consortium. NextGen have already started now from a business point of view. We've had our first internship of the oldest next gen member and uh, we're all paying close attention to the, the schooling and the intellectual uh, uh, capital that we're trying to create. But so much of that is driven by the current TG, this generation, and the founding generation is sitting back looking on, uh, nodding and uh, shaking their head and mostly with smiles uh, on our faces. The key is, is in the letting go and the taking up of responsibility as time goes on and the family evolves.
0: Do your children and your grandchildren have the automatic right to work in the family business, are they preferenced over others?
1: No. the The Constitution clearly outlines both the employment process and the responsibilities over and above uh, non-family employee. From a an understanding point of view, we've developed internship. That does not mean that the next generation will automatically. Um, Be offered a position or uh, be accepted if they apply for a position in the business. It's pretty tough to get a job in any of our businesses, and this gen understand that. How does the family think about and manage its money? One of the things that has helped us, as a result of the regular formal communication through the family council, family partnership, the family campfire is this common language and common understanding of this is how the family does things. And we have this concept of what needs to be bundled and what needs to be unbundled. And as the family grows, it becomes important to make calls on what we're going to keep bundled within the family and what we're going to Unbundle, break away from the family and do things individually. So we have an education fund to supply the ongoing intellectual capital to all family members. And some families in this gen have two children, some have up to five. And the education fund is unbundled to the extent that the fund will finance the education of individuals, uh, individual children, rather than divide up and uh, supply equal amounts to each family. So if you're a a part of this gen that has five children, then the education fund will supply the five children. It will fund them to private schools, uh, to public schools, to extra education. And the unbundling comes about if you're part of this gen and have two children, then the education fund will fund the two children. We have broken down the expectation of equality about individual families getting the same amount for education. We've unbundled it where the education is more important than the sum of money, and there are other areas where we still remain bundled. And part of bundling is dividends paid to partners. They're bundled together as equal amounts. I guess the importance of this concept is written into the Constitution. Then the expectations of family members is firmly agreed on and the structures in place to allow us to take this concept of equalness and to replace it with fairness. Sam came along with a business that he wanted to invest in and put it to the family partnership that he'd like the FP to have a small share of this business because he wanted to use some of the knowledge and the IP, if you like, of the salad business in this other business. So we unbundled. The family bought 50%, but of that 50%, Sam is 35% and the family are 15 That's the first unbundling. What that's going to evolve into, we just know some of these grandkids are going to come and say to the FP, oh, listen, I've got this great idea for a business. Can the family provide some funds for this? And so we've got to work out, okay, does the family take a a share in this or do we loan or whatever? And we see this as being part of the encouragement of entrepreneurship, which is part of the intellectual capital that the next generation is going to need and that we can encourage.
0: One thing I remember from a prior conversation Is you made an offhanded comment to me along the lines that I should ignore what other people uh, tell you about starting a family office because you started with a rather small sum of money, if I remember correctly. Are you comfortable sharing that story with us?
1: We realized that as the number of family members grew, we were going to have members that may have had no interest in the original business. And as funds became available, we set up a family office. Once again, we were ahead of the the game. The current thinking with family offices is that you need a certain amount of free capital to set these up, and that amount's generally got a lot of noughts on it, and we certainly didn't have the ability to put a lot of money into the original concept of the family office. We started up with a hundred thousand dollars, but we put the structure in place. The family office has a separate mission, and part of that mission is uh, diversification, and part of the mission is experimentation, with the hope that as next gen become involved and get an understanding of the businesses, wherein there'll be some areas there that create a spark of interest or a spark of entrepreneurship. What advice
0: would you give to a
1: smart, driven entrepreneur
0: who aspires to be the founding generation of a multi-generational family enterprise?
1: So my advice would be to spend as much time, give as much attention to the family side, to the business of family, as you would to your family business. Now, that's difficult. As an entrepreneur in the business arena, there's a sense of excitement and a sense of surety and a sense of understanding of the business environment. I certainly didn't have that same sense of confidence in the family environment. And I'm speaking personally now. I think Pamela handled this much better than I did. I was much more confident in having critical conversations with team members and members of my industry than I was in having critical conversations with my family. And it takes a certain amount of trust and going within oneself to conduct twitchy, critical, sometimes difficult conversations from a family point of view. We went to school. We went back to school. Part of our intellectual growth as a family was uh, some work we did with a consultant called Alan Parker, who's a professor now, I think, Professor Alan Parker, and how to conduct critical conversations and the concept of pre-framing a conversation. So if I go back a decade or so, I could come at a conversation with my founder's hat on. I could come at a conversation with my director's hat on as a director of the company, come as uh, a conversation as CEO of the company or as a father. And it became really important that between family members who are sometimes wearing several hats that we knew what hat the conversationalist had on at the moment. So with a conversation would start well look with my father's hat on here's what I'd like to see or with my founder's hat on here's what I think should be done And this whole concept of pre framing, saved a lot of uh, angst within both the family but also within the family business. Rob Robson, what is your legacy? My legacy is really if I divide it up into business and family. you know, I think in a lot of ways, Pamela and I hit the ball out of the park business-wise. We've got a great uh, business with a great product and some wonderful people helping us on the way. In that business. But the real legacy of the family business has been in the business of family area, whereby I can still spend time with my children and my grandchildren as really my best friends. My family have become incredible advisors to me, they're not afraid to pull me up. When I step out of line and I still turn to them for advice and some people say that you only need about five good friends who'll tell you when you're going wrong or when you're going against your beliefs and he'll be game enough to pull you up and certainly my wife and my four children are in that category. And we can see the, the human capital into the next generation developing in a way that pleases us and certainly gives us a, a, a wonderful, warm feeling. And part of the key to this is the business was the catalyst for us finding this whole delight and joy into the business of family. And it just gets better and better. For Pamela and I, we we just had an FP meeting maybe five weeks ago, and we finished up back here at home in tears, just tears of joy. It was just it was so emotional, you know what went on and the, the discussions, and just to see the strength and the oh the humility, the strength and humility of our children, and and to know that we've left that somehow we've been part of that legacy. You know, that's that's sort of proof of your legacy. That's been the joy. It's superseded the business success by a 100 times.
0: Imagine you're writing a letter to your children. What is one lesson or idea that you don't think many parents would mention but you consider important to understand?
1: In my letter... I'd I'd talk about uh, the randomness of life. Now, what do I mean by that? If I'm departing Panama to the Marquesas in French Polynesia, that's a trip of 3,600 nautical miles across the Pacific Ocean, and it's 13 to 20 days. I think that's a great metaphor for life because you can leave on a good day, and you can have a plan, but you accept the randomness of the weather and particularly the sea. The sea doesn't care. It just does. And in that 13 to 20 days, you've got to accept what is given out by the weather and by the sea, and you've got to make decisions along the way that allow you to adapt to whatever is happening about you. And I think life's a bit like that. Uh, we can all have a plan for our families. We can have plans for our, our businesses. But the randomness of life plays with those plans. And we've just got to accept what it is and what can't be changed and uh, adapt to that. Sometimes it's not fair. But Fairness is not what it's about. It's about the ability to accept what is and to adapt to the situation. So I'd I'd use the analogy of a sailing trip with some examples of life and just prepare or remind my children that sometimes life isn't fair, but it's livable and it's the ability to adapt and change. And I think this current situation that we're in with with COVID is just another great example of that. Rob,
0: you've been a great inspiration to me and
1: my passion for this
0: subject. I always cherish the conversations that we share together. This one is no different. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today.
1: Thanks again for giving me the opportunity. I really appreciate the experience, Mike, and I commend you on your uh, tenacity to get this thing going and actually doing something about it. I think it's fantastic.
0: To find more episodes of the Business of Family podcast, go to businessoffamily.net. You can also sign up for my email list at newsletter.mikeboyd.com.au. After you sign up, you'll receive immediate access to all past issues and then one email per week You can also follow me on Twitter using at Mike Boyd. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes, which will help more people discover the business of family. Thank you so much for listening.